Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined, as usual, by my awesome partner in crime. Don't you love that title, Mark? I do. Mark Galley. <laughs> Yay, Mark! Yeah, here I am. Partner in sin would probably be better. Wow! <laughs> I don't actually think that is true. Oh, okay. We are there good people good. around here. All right. Thoughtful engagement, scholarship, something like that. All right. Who is... I haven't committed a crime recently, although I was speeding through a school zone this morning. So I guess I am a partner in crime now that you mentioned That could have ended really badly, yeah. just so you and know. I, I got a ticket once for that. So I try to watch myself, but once in a while I slip up. We're, we're all human. Okay, who's joining us today? Uh, joining us is Nick Watson. He's Associate Professor of Sport and Social Justice at York St. John University in the UK. His research broadly focuses on issues surrounding social justice in sports and the relationship of sports and Christianity, and I'm glad to have this opportunity to have him on the show. Nick and I have been email friends for a few years now, uh, sharing ideas about sports and its relationship to Christianity. So welcome, Nick. Hello. It's, it's wonderful to connect with um, friends uh, across the pond. I've been to uh, the States a number of times, and the one thing that always stands out for me is the, the generosity of um, the American people. So it's great to, uh, to be in part of this conversation. All right, we need to get something straightened away right now before we get into this discussion. Sport or sports? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Americans quite often um, use the term sports, but the Brits tend to use the term sport to refer to anything. But um, I guess sport is often used in research and writing to talk about the institution of sport where sports is used more generically to talk about a whole range of different types of sport, whether it's winter sports or, you know, your traditional sports. So. More than you ever wanted to know about the word. <laughs> I have been confused about that, so that's helpful. Already you're helping <laughs> clarify things for us. Thank you, Nick. All right, let's get into our discussion. The Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang are starting tomorrow, an event that will no doubt be celebrated by millions around the world. Yet, increasingly, the narratives around the games have been more challenging for the casual viewer to get excited. Human rights activists protested the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Russia invaded Ukraine the week that the Sochi Games ended in 2014. Pictures of many of the abandoned facilities from the 2016 Rio Games just add to the narrative of many poor people being displaced by these events. This year, North Korea's increasing nuclear prowess in tandem with President Trump's spat with leader Kim Jong-il have cast a shadow across the games and arguably hurt ticket sales in South Korea. As criticisms of the games persist, whether it's due to superfluous infrastructure, corruption within the International Olympic Committee, or widespread doping, we thought it'd be worth going back and learning more about the original history of the modern games. What role, if any, did Christianity or religion play in bringing about the modern Olympics? We'll explore the answer to this question this week on the show. All right, before we get into this, 
Again, a little reminder to everyone that this podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine, and you can get a subscription at orderct.com slash quick to listen. So one of the things that we've been doing the past couple of years, Mark, as you know, is having science coverage, which is something that, what did that start with? When you were working on a magazine called The Behemoth? or uh, Well, it probably started before we started The Behemoth, because that's an interest of mine to some degree, although it's a real interest of Ted Olson's to a large degree. And so we thought we'd we're trying to think of ways in which we can help people think more Christianly about various and sundry science topics besides the relationship of science and religion, which is a broad topic, and besides creation evolution. Are there other things we can talk about in science that could illumine Christians in terms of how they think and live in the world? So that's kind of the purpose of all our science articles. Yeah, and in this January-February issue that we have right now, we actually have some really interesting pieces. We have a piece about a man whose father finds out that he has Alzheimer's when they end up going on this trip to the Galapagos Islands. And of course, the Galapagos is where Darwin had many of his epiphanies. So it juxtaposes Alzheimer's, the human brain, the discoveries that Darwin made. And it also talks, too, about this animal called the albatross that lives on the Galapagos Islands and kind of use this albatross as a metaphor for how our minds work. I honestly thought it was a really beautiful piece, and I would highly recommend it. There'll be another really interesting piece, too, called Understanding God's Control When You're a Climate Scientist. And in this, we actually interviewed this guy named Thomas Ackerman. He is on the forefront of research in geoengineering. So get this, Mark. It's a science that focuses on manipulating the environment to, among other ends, combat climate change. So yeah. that's kind of a crazy thing. To that's <laughs> crazy. I mean, the more you get into the topic of science, the more you realize how complex our, our interaction with the environment is. and. Uh, it does force uh, questions upon Christians of how, what, which of these tools you think are appropriate to use and which are not. So we have to start thinking about that because they're there and they're being used. I really love our science coverage. And a lot of it is stuff that's going to be in our print publication. And so it's only going to be available for subscribers. So if you want to access that, again, it's orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Mark. So the Olympics, they're basically here. Let's give our gut check about that and then get into all this history stuff. How do you feel about that? Well, it's a very practical issue for me. Our television will be on every evening for the next however many weeks it goes on. Oh, yeah? Because <laughs> my wife loves it. She absolutely loves the Olympics. And you love them too. No. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I'm one of those, I'm an old fogey who remembers the day when Olympics was supposed to be about amateurs competing against amateurs, and that whole business has gone out the window. So I have a hard time getting enthusiastic about it now. But I do understand the attraction, and there it is. Wow, so cold. All right, I love the Olympics. Unlike you, though, I do not have a TV, so that often means that I end up at one of my neighbor's houses. I literally watched a ton of Olympics when the Summer Olympics were here last time. I was at her house almost every night, which is also great because I like hanging out with her family as well. And I have this habit of like going over to watch sports over there and then her kids want to play or something and then they want me to teach them how to stretch or and then I do like give them flexibility exercises or conditioning exercises. Anyway, we have a good time. I enjoy hanging out with them. 
So that is one of the other reasons I'm really looking forward to this. What about you, Nick? Since I'm just asking everyone how they feel about the Olympics coming, are you excited? Well, I'm rather like Mark's wife in the sense that I, I love the sport, but I do resonate with, with Mark with regard to I don't like some of the things that surround it. The, the professionalism, the money that quite often brings corruption and backhanders and violence and, and, and a host of other things that um, researchers have highlighted. But generally speaking, I love the concept of sport and the playfulness which is at the root of it. I think that everybody, and from a Christian understanding, this has been highlighted by a number of major theologians in the 20th century, this idea of a theology of a play that there's this primal urginess to play and to excel. But one of the problems with the Olympics and modern sport is that since the 1960s, when a lot of sports have become more institutionalized and linked to the the free market economy and money and sponsorship, wherever you put a lot of um, money and potential status, there's going to be potential ethical problems. So in a nutshell, that would be my take on um, whether I enjoy the Olympics. But as somebody in a university that sometimes critiques the Olympics and modern sport, I would agree with Mark to some degree as well as his wife. <laughs> all right. Well, don't want to make this a Debbie Downer podcast for all of us who are excited <laughs> about this. So let's talk about the history about this, because I think we can all agree stuff should always be more complex and nuanced than either of these polls that we're sitting at right now. Nick, um, tell us about these forces that brought us the modern Olympics. Maybe give us a sense of the world and what was going on at that time. Well, it's interesting just to reflect back on the ancient Olympics, which historians believe were founded around 776 BC. And this is an incredible fact that the ancient Olympics were around for 1,100 years, which is incredible for any um, like cultural institution. Uh, and they were basically closed down by a Christian emperor due to the, the level of violence and brutality. Now, Yikes. Yeah. The modern Olympics were founded in 1896 by a, a French aristocrat and statesman called Baron de Coubertin. Um, and he had this vision of bringing together some of the Greek philosophy and mythology surrounding a sound mind in a sound body and many of the principles of the ancient Olympics, you know, which had been recorded in, in the writings of Plato and, and other people. He had this vision to bring, bring the past um, into the future, but he also went to rugby school, a, a posh private school in, in England, where rugby was used to develop um, leaders for British industry and, and the empire. And the whole ethos at these schools was this idea of muscular Christianity, that is developing leaders with moral integrity and grit while also being physically strong and resilient. So sports like rugby were used to develop leaders with these qualities. Now, he went to rugby school after reading Tom Brown's school days. And, and in a nutshell, basically, Baron de Coubertin's vision and philosophy for the Olympics came by welding together ideas from the kind of philosophy of the ancient Olympics in Greece and muscular Christianity that was birthed in the UK through the writings of Charles Kingsley and Thomas Hughes, who wrote Tom Brown's School Days, which was a novel about a boy who went to rugby school. And, uh, and muscular Christianity certainly became something that went across the Atlantic to you guys um, through the YMCA which was founded in London in, in the 1850s by a man called George Williams. And then obviously that's become a, 
a global um, phenomenon. But in terms of the history of the time, um, the French had been beaten in the Franco-Prussian War. And one of the reasons that Baron de Coubertin thought that sport could be um, a good vehicle for a whole range of positive attributes with regard to people's character. And there's two things, really. One was to kind of instill pride and masculinity back into the French youth. And also he had this vision behind Olympism which is the ideology behind the Olympic Games, to bring nations together and to try and inculcate some peace to stop warring nations. Now, whether that has been a success, there are huge question marks about that um, through history. So that's a, that's a potted history of the context in which the modern Olympics arose. I'm so glad that you introduced this term muscular Christianity because I think it's a really fascinating term, especially because you're suggesting that there was like some sort of theological interpretation around fitness, if I'm understanding correctly. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. So, so the, the dominant theology around that time, especially in the UK, but I also think to a degree in the States, was surrounding evangelism and, and saving the lost, for want of a better word, and, and the, the focus on the importance of the body and thus health and well-being and those things was not as significant. And this really was a bit of an, a remnant of, of some thinking during the medieval era where the body was seen in particularly as evil. But but what happened in the kind of the middle of the 19th century that there was this push towards the social gospel, towards social justice, to looking at the needs of people and, and the poor and the marginalized. So there was a shift in theology and Charles Kingsley, who many people see as the kind of founder with regard to writings of muscular Christianity. Maybe listeners have heard one of his novels, which was Water Babies. He emphasized this thing about the importance of looking after the body and developing a strong body so one could serve Christ and, and serve the poor. So behind the Olympics, which hugely influenced Baron de Coubertin, the founder in 1896, there was this shift in theology um, that that really was emphasizing Charles Kingsley's work about moving to social justice, moving to see the body as as a good thing that can be used as a tool to serve Jesus and to be an enjoyable thing with regard to playing sport for recreation. And in the UK, um, this was also kind of picked up by the government because the Industrial Revolution w was occurring during this era. And those people working in factories and mills for 12 hours a day, six days a week. And they needed some recreation on a, a weekend. They needed some form of catharsis and they needed something to keep themselves fit and strong. And depending whether you lived in the north or south of, of Great Britain, rugby or football were the main sports that governments used to kind of try and socialize um, the masses and, try, and trying to keep them healthy as, as a workforce. So that there are wider socio-cultural forces as to why sport was used in public schools, such as rugby, and to why, why governments use sport to try and keep the masses healthy and, and, and in the workforce. I think it's an interesting comment that you made that Kingsley encouraged, I guess, men especially, to be fit in order to serve Christ and serve the poor, where today I, 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 I just rarely hear that. What I hear is we ought to be fit because we want to be healthy and live a long life. Even in Christian circles, you'll say it's a temple, it's God's temple, so you should take care of it. But this notion of being fit to actually be able to serve God and serve others is just not 
something I hear very often. Yeah, I think I think it's a good point, and I think there are lots of well-being initiatives in mega churches and in churches down in the south in the states. I've seen quite a lot of research published, and it's something that's really emerging where church pastors are seeing a responsibility to look after their the flock's overall physical, emotional, spiritual well-being through physical activity initiatives and exercise and sports clubs that are, you know attached to the attached to the church. But you're right in in the sense that is the motivation for that to keep your body fit to be able to serve Christ, or or is it potentially a more narcissistic thing with regard to to how we look? And I'm, I'm not suggesting that exercise and sport are a healthy pursuit, but for some people, it, it could be a narcissistic quest, and it certainly becomes that for some people who spend 40 hours in the gym every week. I'm not sure if you're one of them, Mark, though. Well, not 40, but I spend quite a bit there, and I will have to admit <laughs> to being more narcissistic than I should be. So... <laughs> I get the temptation, yeah, especially when you're trying to lose weight. You know, Nick, you were bringing up these interesting ideas of like this collision of fitness, meeting these desires for world peace. So interesting. You know, when I think about the 20th century, I think about Woodrow Wilson after World War One trying to create the League of Nations. I think of the UN emerging after World War II. Now I guess I'm going to think of the Olympics emerging after a very violent 19th century in Europe. Tell me a little bit about this, I don't know if I should call it utopian, desire for harmony and specifically why sports got connected to a discussion about peace. Yeah, so so Baron de Coubertin's vision definitely one aspect of it well let let me just pick out the key points of his vision it was about amateurism and the the root meaning of the term amateurism um, from the latin is to do with love so you know we we sometimes say that we we love playing sport or we love watching roger federer and nadal playing it at wimbledon or whatever it might be and so it's that it's that intrinsic playful drive to play and that that was one thing it was about amateurism and professionals were not allowed to take part in the Olympics until kind of the the middle of the latter half of the 20th um, century so that that was one thing another thing was about participation it was about taking part and doing your best and honoring your opponent and and bringing the best out in your opponent and interestingly the root meaning of the term competition sports competition is a mutual striving together for excellence so if me and Mark were playing tennis, if I didn't bring my game to use an Americanism to the court um, and I didn't really go for it in our game, I wouldn't bring out the best in him. Now, as long as we didn't alienate each other or were violent or badmouth each other, then us bringing our best game to the court would bring out excellence and good within the game. Um, and I'll talk maybe more later when we talk about sport in, in, in the modern era. So that's another thing, participation. And then there's far play. And then coming to your point, there's this thing about peace among nations. And this is this is to a degree linked to the ancient truce between warring nations in Greece during the ancient Greek Olympics, where everybody would lay down their weapons and they would have the Olymp- ancient Olympics for a week in Olympia and a variety of other places. Um, do I think that it has borne any fruit? I put some huge question marks there. I, I, it's used as soft diplomacy quite often. When, when countries host the Olympics, they use it as a means of soft diplomacy to engage um, leaders of other nations and they're potentially who they've, they've had conflict with or for their own 
financial interests or global interests. So I think there are some sceptical motivations behind it. And, and potentially the Games as a mega event, you know, for two weeks has has assisted potentially in international relations. But I think the original vision of Baron de Coubertin was potentially um, overly optimistic, one might say, in retrospect. But it was a good one. Let me give you a more up-to-date example. This isn't a mega event, the Olympics. 1995, South Africa. Nelson Mandela, recently inaugurated, used the World Rugby Cup final between the Springboks, the South African team, um, with the All Blacks as a vehicle to try and bring together blacks and whites. And he wore the Springbok jersey, which was the exact opposite of what you'd expect a black man in South African apartheid culture to do. And for a time, for a couple of weeks after the game, there was a degree of cohesion in society and things. But academic analyses that have looked at South Africa now show that really there hasn't been that much change. And so the, the rhetoric around big sporting events causing major societal international change, I have some huge question marks about. There might even be some that argued that Russia was able to invade Ukraine kind of by using the Sochi Olympics as a distraction. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. It, you know, I'm not going to say it always has the reverse effect, but, you know, it, it's clear it, from what you're saying that it's kind of mixed. Very mixed. Very mixed. I mean, let's take London 2012 Olympics and, and Paralympic Games. Sebastian Lord Coe and his, and his organising committee for the Games, they projected that the Games would cost £2 billion and they cost the British taxpayer £12 billion. They based the um, layout of taxpayers' money on this concept of legacy. And the legacy is multi-pronged, but the principal thing about the legacy was that um, because we hold the Olympic Games in this country, more people are going to exercise, more people are going to get fit and healthy. There'll be less burden on the National Health Service. You know, more people will be generally have better well-being. There's recently been a systematic review of literature done on the credibility of the legacy idea, and it shows actually that there's less people physically active and playing sport than there was in 2012. So the long-term benefits of hosting the Olympics for any nation are also very questionable because there's something called the winner's curse in that countries for decades can end up paying off hundreds of millions, if not billions of pounds um, that they've spent in, in hosting the Olympics. So it's far from a potentially positive thing for a nation to engaging. In some sense, that makes sense when you think of human motivation. I mean, the Olympics is only held once every, well, two years to four years, depending on how they time it. I don't know of any any event or any habit we have that we just do once every two to four years and expect it to actually transform us. So <laughs> it's kind of unrealistic. Uh, it might be better yeah. if we had an Olympics every two months, it might make a difference. But it is hard to believe that anything held that, that sporadically could actually have a long-term impact. For sure. And um, I'd like to talk then a little about the Special Olympics and, and maybe listeners have not even heard of the Special Olympics. I, I think it's a more well-known organization in America. Two years ago, I asked 100 undergraduate students on a sport degree at the university in which I teach if they knew what the Special Olympics were. And one third of them put their hands up. And yet the Special Olympics 
is a far bigger organisation in many ways than the Winter and Summer Olympics. Um, there are 4.1 million people with intellectual disabilities such as Down syndrome and autism who take part in the Special Olympics. Now, it's interesting what you say about this habit-forming thing and, and, and the amount of succession change because there are summer games and winter games for the Special Olympics, but it's a community-based idea. And so um, there are Special Olympics events happening now all over the world in something like 140 countries. And what's been very interesting for me, I've made a connection between theological writings such as Jean Vanier, who founded Lash, and people like Henry Nouwen, who emphasize vulnerability and weakness um, in the Christian walk and, and suffering and so forth, rather than this kind of victory theology, for want of a better word. And, and I've pulled together this idea that people with disabilities in this age where strength and intellectualism and so forth are kind of brought to the fore and championed, that people with intellectual disabilities are actually almost like a prophetic message to the modern world um, with all its individualism and you know rampant commercialism. And, and those things have very much characterized modern sport. So I've taken Jean Vanier's writings and Henry Nouwen's writings and applied them to sport, saying that what the Special Olympics stands for, participation and involvement and, and love, you know, you, you can see these attributes on the website, um, that that understanding of Olympics challenges the whole ethic of modern Olympics, which is all professionalized and commercialized. So our listeners are clear. The Special Olympics refers to the often locally organized games that are held for people who have mental disabilities, as opposed to the Paralympics, which are with people who may be handicapped or disabled in some way, which are held after, I don't know what to call it, the regular Olympics? Yeah, for sure. So it's interesting as uh, um, when both those movements emerged, the Paralympics emerged, um, well, the first Paralympics was in Rome in 1960, and the Special Olympics emerged in Chicago, where, where you are, um, under the leadership of Eunice Shriver in 1968. Now, they emerged around the civil rights movement and the disability movement. So again, the things that were happening in Western culture allowed those things to emerge. Um, and you are correct, yes, Special Olympics for people with intellectual disabilities and Paralympics is mainly for people with physical disabilities, people with missing limbs or cerebral palsy, whilst they've just changed the, the ruling slightly in the Paralympics as people with people with intellectual disabilities, if they're of appropriate level, can participate also in the Paralympics. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So the large movement, are they enthusiastic about participating in Special Olympics? I mean, because their their focus is so much on um, cooperation that it's hard to believe that they would be supportive of something in which there is this level of competition and that there's a winner and there's a loser. Well, it's interesting. Cooperation, which many people see um, as the opposite to competition, to me, good competition has a degree of playfulness and cooperation. It's not that Special Olympians aren't competitive. I mean, they all get a hug when they, they come over the finishing line in, in, in running events, for example, and, and everybody gets a medal and all these sorts of things. But Special Olympians have trainers and coaches, and, and they see themselves as competitors and athletes. So there's also a competitive element of Special Olympics, but I would argue, generally speaking, it is held in perspective, <laughs> whereas it gets completely out of perspective and it becomes an idolatrous thing in the world of modern professional sport because there is so much at stake, whether it's money, status, or a sponsorship contract or whatever it may be. So I think the underpinning philosophy of Special Olympics is in some way a counter-narrative, a, a, a prophetic pushback at how modern sport is characterized, um, you know, the big business model of sport. Are there aspects of the games that we'll be watching over the next couple weeks that a Christian should especially support? As somebody who's thought about these things from a theological standpoint for a while, I only have a problem with um, sports that have within their rules, intentional violence. So I don't think there's anything generally, apart from boxing in the Summer Olympics and any activity in the Winter Olympics, to me, is, is, is a good, healthy, potentially healthy human activity in the context of competition. But what's interesting for me is that in the Olympic Charter, it says that there should be no violence in any sports and yet the principal goal within the rules in boxing is to harm and damage and knock out the opponent. So if you knock out your opponent, then that means that you've been very successful as a boxer. And, and any boxer will know every time they step into the ring, there's a potential that, that they could unintentionally kill their opponent or they could get a blood clot or suffer from long-term subconcussive blows and there's links to dementia and Alzheimer's and all these things. So, so I don't think that there's any sports in the forthcoming Winter Olympics that we're about to see that Christians shouldn't watch or engage with if they think that they're helpful. But I have concerns about boxing and I have concerns about mixed martial arts, cage fighting, which is one of the fastest growing sports in America. It's outstripped um, boxing. And there are 700 churches in um, America that use mixed martial arts as a means of attracting young men into the faith. And there's even a church called Fight Church, where the sanctuary is on the first floor and the, um, the cages and the fighting arena are on the, the floor below. So I, I only have questions about sports in which intentional harm is within the rules because I think because we're made in the image of God and being intentionally violent and harmful to each other is, is not an appropriate 
thing for a Christian to engage in. I'm frankly ambivalent about sports that engage in violence. Uh, there's a part of me that it sees the psychological logic to it, and I also see your point. So I've read, and it makes sense to me, that one thing, especially men who are filled with testosterone, how this large muscle mass... It's really important for them psychologically that they test themselves against other men and they test themselves physically against other men and they put themselves in situations. In order, in order to do that, they have to put themselves in situations that are physically dangerous. So no one would disagree that boxing is physically dangerous, football is physically dangerous. And I don't know, that makes some sort of existential sense to me. Well, to be honest with you, Mark, I, while theologically I'd go down the line of, you know, being violent towards another person made in the image of God, as huge question marks. There is a part of me that really resonates with some of the honor I see in boxing and, and how boxers treat each other. And I know some boxers myself, and I've had students do research. I have a master's student now doing research, interviewing professional and semi-professional boxers. And some of these boxers have been homeless on the street, and it has been their source of salvation. The counter-argument to that, to the argument that young men in particular potentially need some catharsis, need to get rid of this aggression, is that they could play other sports like rugby or football or American football. There is, there is a degree of violence and there's definitely a high level of physicality in those games. But the actual, the, the actual aim of the game is to get into the end zone with the ball, or in rugby, it's to score a try and, and, and get into the, um, I forget the name now, um, the, the, the try area at the, at the end of the pitch, because they're invasion games. But the actual goal of the game is not to harm the opponent. Now, I know that sometimes happens, but if that's done intentionally, that transgresses the rules and it brings a punishment. Whereas in boxing, intentional harm is central to the rules. So I would say there are activities that men can participate in and get rid of that aggression through catharsis that are intentionally harmful to another human being. But look, I have, I have a strange soft spot for boxing, even though I've actually published an article from a theological standpoint saying I don't really agree with it. Um, so it, it's a difficult one, and, and I do empathize with your position on it. Yeah, I'd have to say I'm, I'm inconsistent on that as well. I find the, the mixed martial arts ethically dubious would be the most kindest way of putting it. But I find there's something noble in boxing, and I'm not sure why I think that. Yeah, I'm curious, but beyond the sports question exactly, when, when it comes to the larger systemic issues that we mentioned in the introduction for the podcast, for instance, and I think you've also talked about the corruption, if, if you know, this is just something that Christians should go along with and say, like, well, those are just kind of like collateral damage as with this, or, you know, if there would ever be reason to suggest a boycott or something larger. This example I'm going to give isn't, isn't, principally about corruption because the games were still principally amateur in 1924 in the Paris Olympics. Listeners might, you know, know of Eric Little, the um, star of the famous film from 1980, Chariots of Fire. He's a student at Edinburgh University in Scotland and he, he played on the wing for Scotland, but then he became a 100-meter sprinter. And um, in the film and in, and in life, he um, said that he wouldn't run um, for Great Britain on a Sunday in a heat. It's not the final, as, as, as popular myth suggests. It was, a, it was actually a heat. 
but he ended up um, running in the 400 and winning, which could never happen nowadays because of how specialist one needs to be. But in a way, because of his faith and his Sabbatarian beliefs, he decided that he was going to go against the model of sport and um, you know that he wouldn't run, regardless of whether that meant that all his training didn't pay dividends with regard to competing. But bringing it into the modern world... So we're talking here about how culture, modern culture, interacts with sport. And we could be talking about music or the arts or any other recreation or leisure pursuit, I guess. I think of Tim Tebow. Um, listeners probably ways that I don't know too much about him, but I know he was an American footballer. And I think now, correct me if I'm wrong, he acts as a presenter on one of the channels now. Correct. Uh, yeah, Tim Tebow has a foundation. And from what I've read about him and I've spoken to people that have met him, you know, in, in some senses, from a moral perspective, to my knowledge, Tim Tebow has not really put a foot wrong. And he's been a shining example of a Christian in a very difficult, competitive, potentially alienating environment. And I believe that Christians can be in that culture and and be a witness. But I think it's extremely challenging because there are so many things within the culture that could pull someone away. But I think Tim Tebow has largely done a a very good job. No, he's a very admirable human being. He just also doesn't have a job, though. And he kind of well, he played minor league baseball last year. But... Yeah, he's trying to find he's trying to find his place in the world still. Well, earlier we introduced you as someone who has researched the relationship between sports and social justice. So, just to conclude here, what would you say that looks like in the Olympics? In the Olympics, well, I mean, I do know that any host city that hosts. You know, the host the Olympics, there, there is a whole range of activities that occur around those in the criminal world, like prostitution, um, people trafficking and so forth, and people use the Olympics as a tool. So there's that whole narrative and, and there's corruption in, in governance, governing bodies sometimes in the IOC and, and so forth. So some questions there with regard to social justice. I'll give you a really practical one. Um, I run a sports ethics class and I actually said to my students last week, the London 2012 Olympics was projected to cost £2 billion. It cost £12 billion. The government chose to use our money, taxpayers' money, to host the Games. The government have recently gone from heavily subsidising higher education, um, you know, degrees, undergraduate degrees in the UK. Undergraduate students now have to pay £9,000 fees a year, more like the American model. And I said to 50 students, do you want to watch the Olympics for <laughs> two weeks or do you want them to pay for your education? Because that's what would be classed as a distributive justice question. Like, how how does the government distribute and use the taxpayers' money? And they all put their hand up and agreed they'd prefer free education. And these are sports students. So there, there's a, a social justice issue. The, the other thing, um, I'm heavily passionate about myself from my own personal journey in life and, and from from where I feel the rest of my life is going to be dedicated towards is this whole idea around the mental health crisis in our country and in America. And a lot, so much of this is brought on by family breakdown and, and fatherlessness. Not all of it, but so much in my view from studying this area is brought on by fatherlessness and family breakdown. And I truly believe that sport can be a vehicle to get alongside and mentor children 
and there are a range of mentoring projects in America and the UK which which use this. And, and I'd like to see the Olympic Committee and, and those that are involved in the Olympics start to look at a social justice agenda in addition to two weeks of incredible elite sport. Amen on that point about fatherlessness. I do agree with you. My instincts are that it's a huge uh, reason for so much of our problems in America. And the idea that sport could be uh, a, a mentoring model for the young boys who are growing up without role models. I've seen that in my own life. I have a, a foster son who lived with us for a couple of years, and his father deserted the family when he was very young. And it's his coaches and his foster parents who stepped in and have helped him gain his footing in life. So I see how that can work absolutely. And I think that, um, well, in the last decade, the Catholic Church, the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, that the large institutional churches have started to engage in sport. In 2016, the Office for Church and Sport at the Vatican held a global congress, a global conference on social justice in sport, using sport um, for the social good. And it's interesting, the, the president of the International Olympic Committee was there and did a keynote. The chief executive of the Special Olympics was there and a member of the senior exec of the Paralympics as well. So the relationship between Christianity and the church um, is a very positive one. You mean Christianity, and you all... mean Christianity and sports, you mean? Sorry, I am sorry, Christianity and sports. Norm, I normally have my wife with me when I'm talking in church, and she interjects and corrects me and, and, and fills the bit in that I got wrong. So, Mark, I, I thank you. Happy to play that role. <laughs> Surrogate wife. <laughs> Last question for you, Nick. What do you make so far of the way that North and South Korea have kind of interacted with each other leading up to the Olympics? Do you feel like that kind of seems to suggest that there is possibility for this desire of peace to be fulfilled when it comes to that? Or is this kind of such an anomaly? Well, it's very difficult to know or to hold any sense of certainty about any of the rhetoric coming out of the North Korean regime. In, in my very superficial understanding of the North Korean regime and its relationship to South Korea. But what all I would say is that thinking about what social scientists have said about these mega events and that it can be used as a means of soft diplomacy. Well, thinking about that situation, I would say that it's a potentially positive thing. If there are some positive words being spoken between two countries who are potentially going to be hostile to each other in a military way, then that, that in a sense, can only be a good thing as long as it's just not superficial rhetoric. But, but time time will tell on that one. Well, thank you so much for this really informative discussion. I feel like some people will want to learn more about muscular Christianity after this. If anyone has feedback about anything we talked about, you can leave it on Twitter at CTU Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we talk about what is bringing us joy this week, otherwise known as precious moments. Mark? Well, this is the time of year I dream about fishing later in the year. So I, I read books about fishing. I read... People are bored start, already, uh, Mark. People are bored already, but that's what you asked for. Read books I read, about fishing. I read, I tie flies, I restring my reels, I set up trips for the spring and the summer. It's it's a time of anticipation. I would say that even if people don't ever think they'll ever get into fishing, you do have hobbies, Mark, which I think is a really, it's a good thing. Okay. Well, thank <laughs> you for that. Um, when's your next fishing trip coming up? I'm going to Naples, Florida for a company event 
and I'll probably spend an extra day there and try fishing Florida waters, uh, inland waters. I've never done that. What's that? Thought mean? I'd give it meaning not in the ocean. Okay. Florida would be mostly known for fishing off the coast, big game, but I'm interested in the interior, so bass. See what that's about. All right. Where can people find you? You can hear hear from me every week in the Galley Report, which is found at christianitytoday.com slash the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I, in which I link to four or five articles a week and comment on them. Nick? My moment of joy this week. Yesterday, I was 46 years old. It was my birthday. Happy birthday. And uh, thank you very much. You don't need to sing me happy birthday. I won't. Um, just, just in case you were wondering... My two daughters, Isla and Bethan, seven and four, when my wife said to them, what should we do for dad's birthday? They decided I wanted to celebrate my birthday at the local trampolining park. So um, <laughs> I got I got to go and bounce with my daughters at the local trampolining park. If I'd have actually chosen, I would have gone to play golf. But hey, it was wonderful. Um, anything you can spend time with your kids, it's, it's a great thing. So that was my moment of... Um, of joy but you, let's be honest, like you can't really jump on a trampoline and glare or frown. Like it's kind of impossible. <laughs> well, it's true. And and actually, I was like a big kid because as a, as a child between four and 11, I was quite a serious gymnast. I nearly actually came over to Florida for a competition when I was about seven. So I, I had to hold back from trying to do flips and things because that always <laughs> ends up in a mess when all the people think that they're still, you know, 10 years old. <laughs> so did you do some flips then? I, I did. I didn't actually do a couple of flips, but the last time I went, I, I, I can still do a, a forward somersault, but I, I wouldn't do any more than that, just just in case. All right. Yeah, but it was it was great. Is there anything else that you want people to know or where they can find you? Are you on Twitter? Do you have a website? Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I don't really do social media. If there's anything that I would like to... Um, champion is um, at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, which is just down the road from you guys. A, a good friend of mine, Professor Brian Ball, and, and also Professor Chad Carlson from Hope University. Brian's from Calvin, Chad's from Hope. They're the co-conveners of the second global congress on sports Christianity that's going to be held 23rd to 27th of October um, 2019 and the website is launched this week so if anybody's interested and, and you're in the area or you, you'd like to attend you know get yourselves on the website and, and I may well see you there and you'll be there I will be there indeed all right well yes. bring your golf clubs and we'll go out golfing while you're here I would I would love to golf, Mark. I, I have golfed in that area before, and they've got some lovely courses. My precious moment was a, lots of moments. I stayed up till 6 a.m. recently working on a puzzle. What? <laughs> <laughs> recently, some of my friends and I went to a cabin, and we decided to work on a puzzle. It was 10 of us, a thousand-piece puzzle. I think that puzzles are like the perfect cabin thing. I actually think they're like an awesome thing to do with a bunch of people in general, because... Sometimes you just have this like time where you like sit around and just like look at each other. Some people would call that awkward. You have a puzzle, it takes all the awkwardness. You can just sit there and work on the puzzle. And I mean, I really like puzzles because I think they're like also kind of mentally stimulating as well. But they're just fun. You feel like you, you can like celebrate the many wins that you have along the 
way in addition to like having this like larger shared goal that you're trying to work on it. And then of course you can be like me and get really carried away and stay up until way too late. I should say. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, obviously we were talking and enjoying each other's company at the same time. It wasn't like I was just by myself working on the puzzle. But So when I come to the Congress, I'll play a puzzle with you and I'll play golf with Mark. Bingo. You got a deal? That sounds great, Nick. I'm already excited <laughs> about it. And people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Again, support our podcast by subscribing to our magazine. We're at orderct.com slash quick to listen if you would like to get yourself a subscription to that. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, which is also where we ask you to rate and review the show. Again, thank you to everyone who does do that. We really take your feedback to heart. You guys have some good things to say on there and we appreciate it you can find this podcast also on soundcloud or wherever you want to get your podcasts this podcast is produced by myself richard clark and cray allred and we will see you all next week <laughs>